most gracious, righteous, perfect, loving Father. I thank you, God, that you are so worthy of our praise. And I thank you, Father, that you give us the opportunity to lift our voices to you and to offer you a sacrifice of praise, giving thanks to your name for who you are and all you've done. I pray, Lord, as we look into your word, as we begin this journey through the book of Luke, Father, I ask that your voice would be the voice we hear. Get me out of the way. Give us ears to hear you as your spirit teaches us, as your word speaks to us. All for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we are beginning our journey through the book of Luke. A journey I expect to take the better part of a year. I will be very excited if we are done with Luke by next Christmas. I'm serious. Um, because I, I usually, one of the things I love to do is read through a book before I start teaching it. Um, and as I was reading through the book of Luke, I'm like, I, I would get to chapters where I'm like, well, those four verses are a message, and then those three verses are a message, and then those four verses are, a, I'm going to have like eight messages in that chapter. We're going to be in Luke for a while. And I'm excited about that. Um, as I mentioned, the beginning part of this year, or the beginning part as we go through Christmas, we will be looking, uh, moving through the birth of Jesus, uh, as Christmas literally means a celebration of Christ. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first couple verses here, uh, then we're going to go into an introduction of the book, and then we'll get into the text itself. Um, Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered that the word delivered them to us. That's a fun sentence. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now we're going to have a lot of fun pulling that apart. At least I think it's fun. Um, but let's spend a few minutes talking about the book itself. Uh, we call it the gospel according to Luke or the book of Luke. Or if you meet somebody who really wants to show off their theology like I'm about to, uh, the Lukean account. Isn't that dumb? Right? I, I, I heard this person talking about the various gospels and they're like, well, you have the Johnian account and the Markian account, and the Matthean account, and the Luke, I'm like, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why, why, is, why does that have to be any harder than that? But now you have that in the back of your mind. So maybe next week I'll say, turn to the book of Lukean. Um, it was written by Luke, the beloved physician, as he's referred to in Colossians 4.14. He was a traveling companion for part of Paul's missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts. He was a physician, and as a physician, he was likely a Roman, and he was likely a slave. Back then, a wealthy Roman citizen 
would have a slave, and if they noticed that slave was intelligent, uh, they would have them trained as a physician to serve the family. Um, so most likely, that's what Luke's deal was, but his owner, master, benefactor, whatever you want to call it, was a believer. And because we know from the book of Galatians that Paul had health problems, and the book of 2 Corinthians, um, it's likely that this guy let Luke go with Paul to take care of him on his missionary journey. So he was, he was likely a believer, if I didn't already say that. Um, there are no real arguments against Luke's authorship of this book. When we got into Hebrews, we had all kinds of fun establishing who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews, Paul. Um, where there's a lot of people who disagree with that, and I'm not, I would never argue about it. It's not worth arguing about. But throughout the church, church history, the establishing of the canon of scripture, there has never really been argument about who wrote the book of Luke. Um, there is external evidence which comes from the book of Luke being accepted very early on by the church and being written by Luke. And there's internal evidence which includes Paul's references to Luke and Luke's use of the first person in the book of Acts. Uh, of course, Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know this from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And he additionally would have been writing under the spiritual authority and teaching of Paul. Because he was Paul's traveling companion, Paul was most likely the one who instructed him in his faith, discipled him, mentored him, whatever word you'd like to use, um, and as Luke wrote, we're going to get into this a little bit more, um, Paul would have likely been there. That's why when we talked about the book of Hebrews, that a lot of people attribute Hebrews to Luke, which is possible that Luke was the penman under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but by Paul's teaching, meaning Paul still had an influence over the writing of that book. I'm going to get off topic. Originally, Luke and Acts, oh wait, I skipped something, didn't I? Time. It was written around 61 or 62 AD. The timing of both Luke and Acts corresponds with Paul's first arrest leading up to his waiting in Rome to appear before Caesar in Acts 28. Paul is in prison at the end of the book of Acts. That's somewhere around 60 AD, 64 AD. So both Luke and Acts had to be completed by then. We know that. It is believed that both books may have originally been written as part of Paul's defense before Caesar. The end of the book of Acts, Paul says, you know, I appeal to Caesar, and he goes to Rome, and he's waiting. Well, in his appeal to Caesar, he was allowed to present whatever he wanted in his defense. And so it is believed by many that Luke wrote both of these books as a presentation at Paul's defense. Uh, the, the Greek argumentative style of the book lends itself to that, uh, which is why also some people think Luke had something to do with Hebrews. Hebrews is written in the same argumentative style. Originally, Luke and Acts were considered one work, although Luke himself separates them at the beginning of Acts. He refers to the former account when he refers to Theophilus. So the purpose of the book, we're going to go more into this in the opening verses, but ultimately Luke's purpose was to show the humanity of Jesus, using the term Son of Man some 25 times. The other Gospels use it as well, but it's especially in line with Luke's purpose 
In what many consider to be the theme verse of this gospel, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which is lost. The book of Luke was meant to show that salvation is for everyone. Now, the book of Luke's place in the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic is kind of a fancy word. We refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels because it's a general view of the whole. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are quite similar in their structure, their structure and their content in order to form the synoptic gospels. John, of course, is different. But each of the gospels has a very unique audience and purpose. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, and Jesus is presented as the Messiah with fulfilled prophecy. Mark was written to a Gentile audience, and Jesus is presented as servant. Luke was written to a Gentile audience where Jesus is presented in his humanity and as Savior of all, both Jew and Gentile, for which I'm very grateful because I'm a Gentile. John had, did not have a specific Jewish or Gentile audience, so it's called a varietal audience. That's fun, right? And Jesus was pre presented as God for the purpose of our belief. Now, even though the Gospels were the first three are synoptic, there are some unique aspects of the book of Luke. Um, for example, Luke speaks of Zacharias and Elizabeth, which we're going to get into over the next couple weeks, and then various experiences surrounding Jesus' birth, like Mary visiting Elizabeth, uh, Jesus' presentation in the temple, the prophecies of Zacharias and Simeon and Anna's testimony. Luke also gives us the only account of Jesus' childhood. Um, having to be about his father's business, which we'll get to in a month or two. Um, he gives us the account of the repentant thief on the cross, the raising of the widow of Nain's son, the full account of the two that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. There's some good stuff in Luke that doesn't appear in the other Gospels. It's one of the beautiful things about having four Gospels. Right? There's no contradictions between any of them, but what we get is a different perspective from each one. Uh, I heard Pastor Chuck say it this way once, and I've always loved it. He goes, you know, you ever been to a big parade? Rose Parade, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I, I've never been. Um, but if you look, they're going down the street, and what, there's people watching on all four corners. Now, all four of them are seeing the same thing, but they're all seeing it from a different perspective. So as they talked about it, or if they wrote about it, what they wrote would look different. They wouldn't be exactly the same. That's what we get in the Gospels. Back to verse 1. Insomuch as many as have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke immediately gives a purpose in his writing, and he addresses a specific audience. He starts off that, you know, a lot of other people have taken it on to set in order a narrative of the things which happened. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So here Luke is recognizing the other gospel writers. Specifically, he would have been referring to Matthew and Mark. 
Both of their Gospels were written by this time. Uh, actually, probably uh, a fair amount of time earlier. And uh, so John was written later, but he would have been referring here to the other accounts that had been set down as the books of Matthew and Mark, which not only were written, but would have been circulating around the church at that time. And both of those Gospels were written by those who were eyewitnesses, um, and as well as those who were ministers of the word, delivered to them by Jesus himself, and then they gave it to everybody else. So I think that's kind of cool, even though he doesn't mention them by name. So he goes on, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account. Now this is where the book of Luke gets really interesting to me, right? We made it a couple verses. Because that phrase there for perfect understanding, and you all know how good my Greek pronunciation is, it's that long word that starts with, or the phrase, um, you do what you want with that, but it's written down for you. But what the word or the phrase means is it means of following after something to attain a complete or circumspect understanding. What this means is that Luke researched his gospel. Right? Matthew and Mark were witnesses. When John wrote later, John was he was there, he saw it. Luke wasn't. Luke was a Roman. Luke was probably in, in medical school or whatever when all of this was going on. So he wasn't there, but what happened was, he goes, I've heard what everybody else said, right? Probably even read their Gospels. I've been hanging out with Paul. I wonder what they didn't write down. So he went after it. He researched it. That's what this phrase means, um, is that he was talking to many of the people. Probably talked to Matthew, probably talked to Mark and the other apostles who were still alive. Maybe he talked to Jesus' mother Mary, and that's how he found out about the angel Gabriel. Maybe he went and found Zecharias and Elizabeth, who were going to look up and goes, well, you were John's parents. Is there anything you can tell me? And they were like, oh, yeah, we got something to tell you. Right? So we get all of these details that the other Gospels don't have because Luke went and found out. That's what that phrase means. Essentially, he did his homework. And then he talks about how he, these things are from the very first. And that's a fun word that I can actually pronounce, anathen. Um, and it means that it can be, it's translated from above in John 3.31 and John 19.11. What it speaks of is the inspiration of the Spirit of God on the book of Luke. So not only does he say, hey, I researched all of this, but also God's Spirit inspired it, which I think is important for us to understand. So he did all of this so he could write an orderly account, a consecutive retelling of the actual events. That's what that word means, orderly account. And a consecutive retelling of the actual events. He didn't like, you know what? Matthew and Mark left some stuff out, so I filled in some gaps. Right? Uh, he's not like Dallas Jenkins. I love The Chosen. You all know that. But takes some creative license, doesn't he? There's some creative license in there. If you're reading the Bible along with watching The Chosen, you'll go, that didn't happen, right? It makes for good TV, and I, if you haven't watched The Chosen, I encourage it. It's, it's, I think it's fantastic. It's really well done. Um, but do so with your Bible in front of you, and keep in mind that it's a TV show, right? And that's okay. It's okay for it to be a TV show. Um, that's not what Luke did, though. 
He didn't look at Matthew and Mark and go, oh, nobody wrote about John's birth. So, uh, well, what could have happened? Right? This is not conjecture. It's, it's not a guess. Boy, you know, no, nothing said about Jesus' childhood. Maybe all, well, when he was 12 years old, he hung out in the temple and Mary and Joseph lost him. Now, you can only imagine for those three days, we're going to get there, that Mary and Joseph were praying. How do you pray that? Uh, God, we may have lost your son. <laughs> Could you uh, maybe show us where he's at? That's not what happened. Luke did the research. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the things that we have in this gospel are accurate. And then he addresses it to the most excellent Theophilus. The title means that the person who Luke was writing to would have been of great social or political importance, may have actually been Luke's owner. The word Theophilus means lover of God. Greek theos is God. Uh, Philus is where we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. It means lover of God. Probably not the person's actual name uh, unless they changed it. Now, there are arguments made and I actually think they're pretty good arguments that Luke and Acts were not actually written to a specific person. That when Luke addresses Theophilus, he's not addressing one human being. What he's addressing is anyone who loves God. And since it's believed that both books were written as a legal defense for Paul's appearance before Caesar, it's possible. Now, I kind of lean that way a little more than, than Theophilus being an actual person. I lean towards Theophilus being a general term for those who love God. Now, it's a little self-serving because then it means it was written to me. Um, but, we, yeah, to all of you as well, um, you know, what's that saying? Uh, Jesus loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. My wife won't let me buy that t-shirt. That's right. Well, Judy's, Judy's his favorite. Linda's his favorite. He just loves me a little more. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. I am so, so joking. Um, so I'm not sure. Right? We're not really told which one it is, and that's okay. It can be either. It could be a little bit of both. That's okay. And he ends this opening passage that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Whoever Luke wrote to, he wanted them to know with certainty. And the word means security and safety. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. It's not just, I really want you to know that I didn't lie to you. It's, I want you to be secure in what I've written. I want you to find your safety in what I've written. We know throughout the Bible, over and over, God has called our refuge, right? We run to the rock that is higher than I. And Luke is telling them, I want you to have that in what I've written, because it's accurate. In what you've been instructed, and the word for instructed is katecheo, I can pronounce that one, and it's where we get our word catechism. For anybody who grew up maybe in the Lutheran or Catholic church, um, the word catechism simply means that you are teaching doctrine to someone who is learning. So it may be uh, teaching young people, it may be teaching new believers, it may be discipling someone, but it's teaching young 
or teaching someone who is learning about this, those doctrines. That's what catechism means. And Luke wants to make sure that whoever his audience is knows that what they've been taught was the right thing. And so that brings us to verse 5. Verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. It's a terrible place to stop. I know that. But we're going to stop there anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll continue on in chapter 1 next week. But that's because there's a lot of stuff in those five verses that I want to talk about. So here we're adduced, adduced? introduced to Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. And then we have Luke's testimony of who they were as God-following people. And we are giving, given the timing of Jesus' birth. Now, the next five minutes, I just need you to bear with the theology nerd that lives in me and comes out every now and then. So, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain, this would have been Herod the Great, by the way, there were multiple Herods, uh, we were talking about that in, in Sunday school this morning in the book of Acts. There was Herod the Great, and then there was his grandson, Herod Agrippa, and then there was his nephew, Herod Antipas, and there, there was a lot of Herods. Um, this would have been Herod the Great. And uh, he was the one who rebuilt the temple for the Jewish people. He was also the one who killed all the babies in Bethlehem, um, we read about a little bit later on. But there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, that seems to be a fairly innocuous statement, right? We're introduced. Basically, that's to give us the time period that this was taking place. Because we can look back in history, even, and see when Herod was king. We can look back and know that the various priests had these times of service in the temple. But this is really, really fun to me. Because this will tell us when Jesus was born. Not the day, but the approximate time. Let me explain. When David was king over Israel, the number of the priests were growing. There was a great number of Levites, and it didn't make sense to have all of them in the temple all at the same time. Right? That would just be silly. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, David set out 24 two-week courses for the priests to serve in the temple. So essentially, you were a priest, you worked two weeks, well, technically three weeks out of the year. But two weeks were part of your course, and then all the priests were to be there for the three big festivals, um, which were Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The courses would start on the first of the Jewish month of Nisan, not Nisan, that's a car. 
but Nisan, only one S. And the course of Abijah was the eighth course of the year, according to 1 Chronicles 24.10. Now, if you're reading through 1 Chronicles, you get to 1 Chronicles 24.10, you see, oh, the eighth course of Abijah, it means nothing. If you read it here and you're not thinking back to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, which how often, be honest, how often do you think about 1 Chronicles chapter 24? Um, it doesn't seem all that important, but it is. And this is why. If we do a little calendar conversion, the Jewish calendar to our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, and we do a little bit of math, this is what we find out. Zechariah would have served sometime in the month of June in our calendar, right? As such, we, can, we have to make a little bit of an assumption because the Bible tells us, and we're going to read all about this in a couple weeks, um, the Bible tells us that he went home and Elizabeth got pregnant. We're not given a time frame, but we can make a safe assumption it was within a month or so. Most likely because the angel said, you're going to go home, your wife's going to get pregnant. Um, so she probably got pregnant sometime in late June or early July. We also know as we continue in the book of Luke that Elizabeth was pregnant for six months when Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit and then went to visit Elizabeth. So much so, it's that beautiful part of the Gospel of Luke that when Mary walked in, John the Baptist inside Elizabeth left. Which, right, we're going we're gonna to get there, I know. Therefore, John would have been born sometime in March in our calendar. Give or take, right? These aren't exact. It might have been, you know, uh, um, February 28th. It might have been March 3rd or March 24th. We, but sometime in that general area. And Jesus was born three months later. So if we look at that, that means Jesus was born sometime in, no wait, Jesus would have been born six months later, sorry. Because Mary was pregnant for three months when John the Baptist was born. I should read my notes, I'm trying to, it's right there. So Jesus would have been born six months later, which means he was born sometime in September, or maybe October, not December 25th. <laughs> I know, I've just ruined Christmas for everybody, haven't I? Now, this, of course, is confirmed by the fact, and we'll get again, we'll get to this a little later, that the shepherds were watching their sheep in the fields at night. They wouldn't have been doing that in December. They would have been doing that in the fall, especially if it was like the fall we've just gone through, and it was warm or unseasonably warm way too long into when we should have had snow and cold. But during the winter, they would all bring their sheep in at night. They would keep them in folds so the sheep could stay warm. It was too cold to be out in the field. What this means is Jesus was not born on December 25th. That date of December 25th comes from when Constantine became emperor over Rome and he Christianized the Roman Empire and at the same time paganized Christianity. December 25th is actually the birthday of Nimrod, great name, um, who was the son of Semiramis, the queen of heaven, right? If you start delving into that, you can see how some of that stuff started to come out in Roman Catholicism. Um, but for our purposes, I am glad to celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Because as followers of Christ, we should celebrate the fact that our Savior was born every single day. Just like we should celebrate Good Friday every single day and Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday every single day. Because our Savior came 
for us. Right? And so I don't care if it's July 27th, December 25th, February 3rd, I can wake up in the morning and praise God that Jesus was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a substitutionary death on the cross for my sin, that he rose again three days later, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again. Every day. Every day we can celebrate that. On December 25th, we eat too much and give presents as part of it, but you know, we can do that every day too. It's just not healthy. So, Zechariah, love this guy's name. His name means God has remembered. Then he has a wife by the name of Elizabeth, which means God is my oath. And look at the beautiful testimony they have. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because she was barren and they were old. That's what that means. They were advanced in years. It's a nice way of saying they were old. How old? Very. We'll get to that. So they were both righteous before God. They both followed and obeyed his word. This is the testimony that we as followers of Christ should have. And if we don't always have it, if we're honest, right, we sometimes don't have it, it's what we should be searching for. We should be seeking after God, studying his word, being in prayer, being in fellowship, so that we can grow in our faith and we can grow in our walk with him so that that would be our testimony as well. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver or gold. Why do we want a good name? Because Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. That's why we should want a good name. And I mentioned this before, but there's a few people here who haven't heard this story, so I'm going to tell it very briefly. Uh, when I first got here, those of you who are lifetime new songers, you know this. We didn't have a great reputation in our city. Our church had been through some very difficult times. And when I first got here, this is what people would go, oh, you moved to Tennessee? Why are you here? Oh, I'm the pastor at New Song. Oh. I've heard that church has had some problems. <laughs> yes, they, yes, they have, right? And the elders told me everything before I got here, so none of, none of it was a surprise. But what's been beautiful, and this has nothing to do with me, and it has nothing to do with you, it is all because of God's gracious work among us. It's been very cool to watch. Because after about a year, year and a half, I would meet people, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm the pastor at New Song. Oh, I've heard good things about that church. The reputation changed. Right? And, and, and don't give me credit. Don't give our elders credit or any, or any of you. Um, I love you all, but it wasn't me. It was God. God has done this beautiful work. Now, he's done it through us, and I praise him for it, but God has done this work. And it should be something that we should strive for in our own lives and as a church. People should go, oh, you're a Christian? Well, uh, well maybe I don't like it, maybe I don't agree with it, but I can't deny that there's something about you right i can see the light of christ shining in you now they're not going to put it that way but they should still see it she was barren it says which was a cultural horror in that time if your wife did not give you a child 
And even more specifically, if your wife didn't give you a male child, you could divorce her. Remember, it was Henry VIII who kept beheading his wives for having daughters, right? And then they found out all these years later that it's actually the man's genetics that determine whether you have a boy or a girl. Poor Henry's wives. Um, but that would have been terrible. So the fact that Zechariah stayed with her, that he loved her, that they grew old together, that's a testimony again of his righteousness and how he was walking with the Lord. That, of course, means that John's birth was miraculous as well, because not only was she barren, but they were well advanced in years, which means not only were they older, they were beyond the age of being able to have children, much like Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham was 99, Sarah was 90, not having kids at that age typically. Here, same difference. So Zechariah and Elizabeth were probably up there a ways, right? When it says they were older, they probably weren't, you know, 46, which feels old to me, but isn't really all that old. I do think it's important for us to note that being one who lives a righteous life before God does not negate difficulty in our lives. So you have this beautiful testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were righteous. They kept the commands of God. But she was barren. Because there are some false teachers in the world who would have you believe that if you are a follower of Christ, you will always be rich. There are some false teachers in the world that says if you are a follower of Christ, you will never get sick. You will never have a bad day. You'll never have anybody be mean to you or anything else you might want to put on that list. They are liars and they are leading people to hell. Because I'm going to tell you something. I am a follower of Christ. I love him with all my heart. Am, am I always perfect? No, not even close. Do I always follow his commandments? Mm -mm. Um, but I've gone through some stuff. Anybody in here not gone through any stuff, right? We've all gone through stuff, even though we love Jesus. Does that mean that he stopped loving us for a moment? Or does that mean, I'm going to tell you this one, oh, I love you all, don't ever post this on Facebook or I'll get angry. Um, not, not specifically at you, but whoever gave it to you. You ever seen the one that says, oh, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest warriors? No, he doesn't. I'm not his strongest warrior. I'm weak. And I know I'm weak. And sometimes I go through those things because of my own poor decision making. And sometimes I go through those things because God has a purpose. And often that purpose is to reveal my weakness so that I'll rely on his strength instead of my own. So anyway, if you post that on Facebook, you know, just please don't. Um, it's, it, that, that's on the list with people who pray Daddy God. Just so you know, right, you guys have heard that before. I have not complained about that in church before. We were somewhere, I don't remember where we were at, and we were, we were praying with a group of people, and someone's like, oh, Daddy God, I just love, I'm like, no! Father God, fine. Abba Father, I'm good with. Even Dad, Daddy God, I don't know why that just irks me. Right, and, may, and, may, and maybe they're totally sincere, and I shouldn't be so judgmental. Okay, I really shouldn't be so judgmental, even if they're not sincere. But, Daddy God just, it grates on me, nails on a chalkboard. 
And I think God is probably laughing at me right now because I'm sure it doesn't bother him. Um, but John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So I'm not trying to tell you um, what God does and why all the time. That's not up to me. But what I can tell you with certainty is that as followers of Christ, we will go through difficult things. But we have hope because Jesus has overcome the world. When we're told to rejoice in our tribulations, I know, hard word to listen to. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about how God calls us to pray for our enemies, to forgive those who have treated us poorly. Sometimes that's hard to hear, isn't it? We don't like that. I don't know about you. I don't like it. When God tells me to forgive someone who's treated me poorly, or when God tells me to forgive someone who's treated my family poorly, oh, that's, that's even harder. It doesn't change. It's what we're commanded to do. And it doesn't change that the Bible tells us very clearly that if we refuse to forgive someone else, well, then God doesn't have to forgive us. Ooh, that one's no fun either. Right? I love the word of God because the word of God doesn't sugarcoat anything for us. It says, if you're not going to forgive people, then God doesn't have to forgive you. So, forgive. It's that simple. That's a different message, though. Right? The Bible doesn't tell us anywhere that our lives will be unicorns and rainbows and puppy dogs, right? It says the Bible doesn't say that. What does the Bible say? Yeah, you're going to go through some tough stuff. Go read the book of Job, right? You're going to go through some tough stuff. And sometimes God has a purpose in it. Sometimes it's a result of our own decisions, but we're going to go through it. So how do we rejoice? What leads us to a place where we can rejoice in our suffering, right? Don't ever get up and go, God, I thank you that this horrible thing happened. I'm so excited. That's a lie. But what you can do is say, Father, even though I don't know why this is going on, and even though I don't like it, and even though it's difficult, I know you love me. And I know you're going to get me through to the other side. And I know you're going to take care of me. And in that, I can rejoice, even in the midst of the worst. So then we get to Zechariah's service. So while it was evening, or while he was serving, sorry, as priest before God in the order of the division, according to the custom of priests, the lot fell to burn incense. When he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And I, I just, I love this. Zechariah would probably only have the opportunity to do this once in his entire lifetime. And because he was older, he had been serving as priest for a while. He had shown up for his two weeks on multiple occasions. But this time, the lot fell so that he could burn incense. I imagine that would have been a great thrill for him. Right? We know, Proverbs says, and I, I don't have the reference, but Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do you think it was an accident? that Zechariah was supposed to burn incense that day? Of course not. When we get to verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense, which we're going to talk about next week. Obviously, God needed Zechariah in uh, the tabernacle itself, or the temple itself, lighting the incense at the hour of prayer because he had a message for him 
and well, the angel didn't need to appear to the whole crowd gathered outside. Incense was offered twice a day during the time of the temple when the sacrifices were regularly made. Um, they would offer a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice every day. And after the morning sacrifice, incense was lit. And after the evening sacrifice, incense was lit. And at this time, the evening sacrifice wasn't what we would think of evening. It usually wasn't 5 or 6 o'clock. It was usually around 3 in the afternoon. When you get into the books of Acts, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's this time period right here. And so it's his job to go in there and light the incense. And it's going to lead to the angel uh, meeting with Zechariah and making the first of two announcements that change the entire world that we're going to talk about next week. Right, you don't want me to get into it? I get into it now. It'll be fun. But this is, I, I want to look at this thought real quick. That there was a multitude of people praying outside at the time of incense. And I think there is something that is so powerful when God's people pray together. Now we are commanded, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, go into your closet, right? Don't stand on the street corner and make a long prayer trying to get everyone to look at you. And I appreciate that. We should each have our own time with the Lord. But there's something powerful when we pray together. Je uh, Jesus, well, his brother, James, told us in chapter 5, verse 16, that we are to confess our trespasses to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What he's talking about there is corporate prayer. Ultimately, now, it might be two people. That counts as corporate. It might be the whole church. It might be a, a small group. It might be family. It might be whatever you want it to be. But it's powerful when we pray together. It's powerful when we're vulnerable together so we can honestly pray for one another. I know. That's a word not a lot of people like. Trying to be vulnerable. I don't want to be vulnerable. You need to talk to people. I don't want to talk to people. You need to tell people what's going on. I don't want to. But we're only as sick as our secrets. So I say all that. Um, if you look in your bulletins next week, Sunday at 830, second Sunday prayer. Just throwing that out there. As we close, I know this was a lot to take in today. And thank you for being patient um, with my need to uh, geek out on all the theological stuff in here. Um, and I appreciate you being open to receive from God's word as we begin the journey in the book of Luke. For us today, there are two things I think are vital for us to take away. First, in the opening of Luke, we are giving an amazing glimpse into the continuity and accuracy of God's word. This is something we should be aware of and we should be looking for as we study God's word. Because as we do, we will have the same confidence in our instruction in God's word that Luke intended for his audience, for Theophilus. And we should. Now, does that mean you can never ask a question? No, ask questions. Does that mean that if you read something and you don't understand it, that you're not a Christian? No, that's not what that means. But what it means is you can look into this book 
You can read it. I don't care if it's Genesis 1 way, 1 1, all the way to Revelation 22 21, and everything in between. You can read this book, and you can know it's God's word. You can know it's accurate. And then you can ask God to help you understand it and apply it. Second, we see the importance of testimony. As we live our lives before God and we seek to honor Him, this is empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by God's Word, and seen in the world around us. But there's importance to our testimony. So, how do we take this home? First, as we approach the birth of Christ in our yearly calendar and in the book of Luke, I want to ask, what does it mean to you? Do you simply celebrate Christmas like any other holiday? We put up the tree, we roast the, the turducken, we, uh, you know, we make pie and we, we give presents. Yay, elf, and we watch elf or a Christmas story or the Santa Claus or Miracle, or not Miracle, oh, Miracle on 34th Street. I was thinking of A Wonderful Life, which, by the way, is being released in theaters for its 75th anniversary this year. Throwing that out there. Is that what we celebrate? Is that what we celebrate? Or do we celebrate Jesus Christ? Now, is there anything wrong with giving presents? No, not at all. Is there anything wrong with watching the movie Elf? Well, if you like dumb humor, not really. But... The important thing is that we celebrate Christ. And I ask this because there's really only one way to celebrate him correctly, and that's to receive him as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way to do it right. you got to start with that relationship. So if there's anybody here, if there's anybody listening online or anybody who listens to this recording later, and you have never accepted the free offer of salvation by grace through Jesus Christ, today's the day. You can come talk to me afterwards. You can... Get on our website and email us. You can leave us a comment on Facebook. But don't go another day without knowing him. Because nobody's promised tomorrow. Number two, and this is more for those of us who are followers of Christ. How is your light shining in the world? Do the people around you see the life of Christ being formed in you and lived out by you? Or do they see something else? Last week I challenged each of us to some God-focused self-reflection that's going to be necessary to answer this question. But what are you putting out there when you're in the world? Are you shining the light and love of Christ to the people around you? Or are they seeing something else? Now, if we're all honest, eh, it's probably a little bit of both, depending on the day or depending on the time of day or whether or not you know we've eaten yet or <laughs> whatever it might be. But... It's important for us to think about. And it's important for us to acknowledge that if there's something in our lives that's not representing Christ in the world, that we need to deal with that. We need to let the Holy Spirit deal with that. We need to let the Holy Spirit deal with that through his word. But we got to know what it is in order to deal with it. All right? There's 10 verses of Luke. That was a lot. It's only going to get better. Let's pray. Father, we love you for your goodness and your graciousness to each of us. We love you, God, that you sent your son into this world to die for us, to give us hope, salvation, forgiveness, and a future. We thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. We thank you for your word, and I pray as we continue about our day and our week, 
that you would work in each of our lives so that we can walk in a way that honors you and shines the love of Christ into the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.